Welcome to Mortals, a podcast where we explore how humans have managed their dead throughout history. From barrows and burials to cremations and kurgans, we are taking a look at rites, rituals, and practices from around the world. Mortals podcast is for the morbidly curious or the curiously morbid. This week, we are going to be talking about Scythian kurgans. Please be aware that this episode contains mentions of self-harm, cannibalism, human sacrifice, and strangulation. Now let's get on with the show. So, Janine... Mariah, do uh, either of you know what a Kurgan is? Uh, I know nothing. It's I have come across the term during my very brief foray into linguistics and the history of the English language. I know that there's a hypothesis about the English language or language in general spreading from the Kurgan area. I don't think that has anything to do with what we're talking about today, though. As far as I know, which just in the context of the Kurgan that I'm talking about... That has nothing to do with uh, the type of Kurgan <laughs> that I am talking about. Um, have either of you ever heard of, or do either of you know what a Scythian is? I'm going to say no. Is that say, like a scythe? No, it's spelt like kind of like implement? that. No, not quite. It's actually a is a nomadic group. They were around several thousand years ago. Around 500 BCE is the particular era that I'm talking about today. And they were on the okay. Eurasian or Pontic steppes. A lot of people I don't think have really heard of Scythians because I think it's something you only ever come across if you're a classic student or if you're studying classical history just for fun. The only pop culture Scythian I've ever seen and I was really, really excited to see this, was in uh, The Old Guard. I don't know if either of you have seen that movie that was on Netflix. Had, um, is it Charlize Theron? I, I don't know. I, I can never remember actress names, but it has the, the, the lady with the short black hair. And it's yeah. very, like, borderline grimdark. Cool. Yeah, I haven't actually watched of. it, but I've seen the ads for it. It's really like, good. It's interesting. Yeah, it's really good. It, the whole premise is essentially, it's about six people who can't die. Except for the one time that they can, so, which I guess everybody dies eventually, even immortals. I feel like it's very topical. (laughs) Standard. You said this was on Netflix? Yeah. But so. I'm gonna have to watch it. Yeah, it's really good. So, one of the older immortals in this movie, which is based on a comic book, is the character, the short black haired character that you have heard of, is a woman named Anne. Maki, and she's actually a Scythian, and I was really excited to see that, but she's like a killing machine, and she's super badass, and if you haven't watched the movie, it's kind of cheesy, but it's good, I promise. So the way that I'm going to be breaking down how I talk about this is we owe a lot of what we know and what we don't know to Herodotus, who, if you don't know, was a Greek historian who was active in the 5th century BCE, and he wrote histories which talked about the Greco-Persian Wars around the same time that he was alive. He provides an ethnographic account of the Scythian people, 
as well as a very detailed account of how they buried their kings and their dead. One thing, though, is Herodotus is not always the most reliable, as we will discover in this episode. He had a tendency to embellish details and things. But have either of you come across Herodotus at all? The name is familiar to me. I used to study philosophy. I know it sounds like I study a bunch of things. I don't. I'm just indecisive. (laughs) (laughs) But I came across him uh, during studies of ancient philosophy and briefly when reading about Alexander the Great. Mm -hmm. But I don't actually know anything concrete about him other than there's a name and he was a historian long before Christ. (laughs) Yes. Seems a little crazy for me to say no to this question as a student of history, but uh, I definitely wasn't focused in those classic eras, more so in the 19th and 20th centuries. So maybe it's not so crazy. There's so much history to be learned. But no, I'm not super familiar with Herodotus. Yeah, I was a classics student, so he was uh, a big chunk of at least one term, and I definitely didn't do the readings at the time. So... (laughs) Coming full circle. <laughs> Who does all the reading? Student oh, life. But yeah, so Herodotus, really famous researcher. He was born in Persia, died on the Italian peninsula, has a tendency to embellishment, which I really want you to keep in mind as we go through his notes on, or rather, what he wrote about the Scythian people. I'm not going to go through everything that he details about these people because some of it I think is irrelevant to what I'm talking about, irrelevant to Kurgans. Do you know when he was writing about the Scythians, like in relation to the 500 BCE time frame that the Scythians... It's difficult to tell concrete dates for when he was born and when he died, as well as when he was actually writing about these things, but it was within a century at the very least. And the Scythians also, as far as as a culture, have a very kind of long, I don't know what the word is here. They were around for a long time and they kind of like most cultures went through different eras. Towards the end, they had settled and they were no longer nomadic. So if that answers your question. (laughs) It does. Do you know, so obviously they're nomadic peoples. Do we know kind of the extent of their range in relation to modern day countries. So the countries that would be there today. So rough idea of that. The area that a lot of that they would bury their kings is referred to in Herodotus's The Histories is in the land of the Garoi, which is modern day southern Ukraine. Oh, okay. So, that makes sense. And um, so it's like around yeah, the Eurasian steppes, so kind of uh, yeah. like Iran and that area, the Baristhenes, etc., if that's helpful. Very uh, blurred lines between Europe and Asia. Yes, where all of those lines start to blur, exactly. Gotcha. Cool. If it's also helpful at all, when I was trying to look up individual Kurgans... I was trying to get specific burial goods from specific burials, and uh, a lot of the Wikipedia pages and a lot of the things I was looking at were in Cyrillic, so if that is also, I guess, a bit of a... Classic barrier to history is language barriers. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know, like, when I wanted, I was looking at doing a master's degree in classics, and 
for a lot of universities. It didn't matter if you were doing Roman or Greek. You had to have Latin and ancient Greek. And I'm like, but I'm not, I want to study Romans. I don't care about ancient Greek. So I feel that. The struggle. Yeah. So moving swiftly onward. So Scythians, according to Herodotus, and again, a disclaimer that what we know about the Scythians is mainly from Herodotus, who was just one guy who had his own biases and was a Greek, essentially. So he was looking at it from a Greek... He was looking at these people from a Greek lens. And I think that's something that's really important to keep in mind, especially as that comes into effect pretty much right at the beginning of book four of his histories when he starts talking about the Scythians and he compares all of their gods and essentially has Greek versions of them. So one of their primary gods is that of Tibeti, who he compares to as Hestia. He doesn't provide a Scythian name for Ares, but that is who these people left offerings for and were most involved with, according to him. It's kind of just a god of the same domain, so he's drawing these false parallels because he's like, hmm, this is what I know, and these are other yes. people. I don't have to care that much. <laughs> yes, to a degree. Like I, I think that there definitely is some overlap obviously like everything everyone is so close together over there that you have mixing of you have a diaspora of different ideas and things their term for what he refers to as their zeus is papeos which is similar to the greek word for father so there could be something there about maybe this is where that linguistic theory comes from exactly (laughs) um (laughs) so you said their primary was he's you said aries Ares, Hestia, and the Scolatoi, or the Royal Scythians, uh, were the prime worshippers of Thegamacidus. If there's any Scythians listening, I apologize. Thegamacidus, who is referred to as Poseidon by Herodotus, because Poseidon was the god of the ocean, but he was also the god of horses. And the reoccurring theme in this whole episode is going to be horses. Because for some reason, nomads like horses. Can't imagine why. But... (laughs) This is for you horse girls out there. Yeah. Uh (laughs) Oh, I don't think the horse girls are going to like where this one's going, but... Never mind. Horse girls, shut it off. (laughs) So just to put my own clarity, uh, when we're talking about Ares and Hestia, and I think you said one more for a noob like me, Ares is the god of... Is the god of war. And Hestia is the goddess, the goddess of the hearth. Mm. So Herodotus, just speaking more about Hestia or Tibeti, speaks of a royal hearth. He doesn't really go into detail about what that is. He just kind of mentions it in passing. He's like, oh yeah, there's like these kings and they also have this royal hearth that sometimes, you know, people, if they lie to the fire, then bad things happen. And we also have prophets, by the way. And you're just like, wait, 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 what? <laughs> Go back to the bit with the hearths. <laughs> so I think it is a bit of a clue because it does highlight the importance of Tibeti and the hearth in that culture. And I could make a whole bunch of parallels to future religions, such as Rome, that have their own versions of Hestia and the uh, versions of Vesta. But I feel like that is a whole another episode that I could do in the future. So I'm just going to let that one lie. So because they were nomadic, it wasn't really in their practice. 
practice to erect temples. However, they did erect small altars and I don't quite want to call them temples because I haven't seen them called temples, but essentially effigies towards Ares. And they were essentially sticks of a certain length that they would bound up and then they would stack them. And then at the very top, according to Herodotus, would be an iron sword. And it also, I feel like, goes to show the importance of this structure because they are a plains people. Wood is a lot harder to come by. Mm. And swords are difficult to make. Yes. It's <laughs> a lot of precious resources to leave. So here's hoping that, that their god was pleased with that. Well, apparently also, according to Herodotus, they because of the rains and the wood would rot, they would actually build it up again like every year that they came back around that spot. Similar to Greek offers and ancient Greek religion. For those that don't know, the ancient Greeks were very fond of sacrifices. They would sacrifice bulls, goats, oxen. They would leave fresh fruits or flowers, pour libations. The Scythians were similar. They also had sacrificial offerings. For some reason, Herodotus refers to their sacrificial animals as victims which I think shows either a bias in the translation, in my translation of Herodotus or a bias to himself. Like in... That seems a little hypocritical there. <laughs> so in Greek offerings, generally before an animal was sacrificed, they would pour libations or have preliminary rites of consecration. But the Scythians didn't have anything like this. Ares was the god that they sacrificed most often to with horse girls turn this off. Horses being the most common sacrifice, which we can actually oh, confirm, no. as we will talk about a little bit later. One thing that's really interesting, though, and I kind of wonder as far as just the big three religions, pigs were never sacrificed and they refused to even raise them. So I kind of wonder if there's like a tie-in with the three monotheistic religions somehow. But that's that was a whole other rabbit hole that I didn't get to I didn't have time to di dive down into. But on top of sacrificing oxen and horses, they also definitely sacrificed people. So oh dear. yes, oh dear indeed. Oh horse. <laughs> oh horse. <laughs> um, so we're gonna talk about how human sacrifice. We gotta make this lighthearted somehow. So if they ever went to war, which they regularly did, for every 100 prisoners that they captured, according to Herodotus, they would sacrifice one of them. At this point, as I was doing my reading, I kind of noticed that, I don't know if I caught Herodotus in a lie, I caught the old man in a lie, because he says that this one prisoner out of 100... They are bound and they have wine poured over the prisoner's head, which prior, like two minutes ago, did I not say that they do not follow the Greek tradition of pouring libations? No, that's what I fucking thought, Herodotus. But. <laughs> <laughs> Busted. Busted. So they pour wine over the prisoner's head, Herodotus get wrecked, and their throat is cut over a jar. And the blood mixed with the wine is taken to the top of one of those altars to Ares, the bundle of sticks and the sword at the top. And then they pour that blood over the sword. They just had to be as metal as possible, I guess. 
I was about to say, my goodness. That's pretty oh. intense. You oh. imagine being out on a stroll and you just come across this offering and it's just like sticks and there's a sword that's just drenched in blood and wine and you're like, whoo, how? This is not naturally occurring. I can't imagine how that would smell. Oh, dude. Oh, Ooh. oh, my friends. We haven't <laughs> even gotten started yet. We haven't. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Oh, I'm so excited. Second, I thought you were going to tell us that you had experience with hot blood and wine smells. But wait, there's more. <laughs> Mariah, mind your business. Okay. Oh, no. okay. All right. Uh, All right. It's none of your business what I get up to on the weekends. <laughs> to continue off of that... Any of the men who were slaughtered in a battle or in war, they would cut off all of the right arms, again, still according to Herodotus, and they would throw them up in the air, and then they would just leave them where they fall. I personally have a hard time believing that because I don't think that there's any, at least not that I could find, any archaeological evidence of this. I feel like everyone just missing a right arm, a bunch of detached right arms on a battlefield that's been excavated would be pretty obvious and kind of a big deal in the classical world. So I'm going to call bullshit on this one. But yeah, pretty fucking weird, if you ask me. It's the worst kind of bouquet to throw. <laughs> God. <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine well, the like... The next sacrifice catches... I just imagine throw it into like, the rest of the captured soldiers. <laughs> God, so gross. Oh yeah. But moving on a little bit to talk about Scythian kings, I'm gonna skip past a little bit of this, even though it's really interesting. And if you have a copy of Herodotus, or I'm pretty sure you're honestly because like it's available, at least one translation is available online somewhere. I have no doubt that you can find it for free. I highly recommend that you check out this next section on soothsayers and prophets, because essentially, if the king falls ill, their belief is that it is caused by someone swearing falsely by the royal hearth, notably the Hestia or Tibeti tie-in. And if a prophet is incorrect in their judgment, mm. they are essentially burned alive in a wagon full of wood that was pulled by an oxen. It's insane. But, but yeah, that's just my well, you one. You gotta be careful what you say if you're a, if you're a Scythian prophet. Yeah, and it was like they all came in threes, so it wasn't just you, but it was you and your two co-workers that were going to be burned alive in an oxen wagon. And yeah, awful. Well, fuck. There is a bit more in the histories that talks about uh, how they swear oaths, hint, it involves wine and mixing their own blood in a cup. But yeah, they were a pretty fucking metal. I'm imagining what kind of what kind of vessel for this wine and blood they would have to use for both dipping weapons, which I imagine are quite large and usually long and kind of awkward, and also for drinking. They had... Like, do you just have a really, really tall glass? That <laughs> is somewhat unclear. Or is it just the tip? <laughs> Maybe just like really shallow troughs. Straws? <laughs> Amazing. All of the archaeological material that we have from them, which again, I'll talk a little bit more about later, uh, they do have plenty of drinking vessels that are like really elaborately decorated as well as like cauldrons and the like. So they had no shortage of things to put liquid in, which is a weird thing to say. Right. And I guess they probably don't need to dip a whole sword. I guess not. It's not. Herodotus isn't clear. So, burial. 
We haven't really talked about burials yet, and that's kind of what we're all here for. And it's the thing that I'm most excited to talk about. The Burial of Scythian Kings was written about in extreme detail by Herodotus. They were, as I mentioned before, meant to be buried in the land of the Garoi, which we didn't know where that was for a long time. Although in the last several decades, we've realized that it's actually in the south of modern-day Ukraine. Regardless of where a king died, this is where he would be buried. Once a king died, they would first have to prepare the body for burial, as well as for it to travel. The belly would be cut open, all of the organs cleaned out, and it would be the cavity would be filled with galing gale, which is a ginger-like root, incense, celery seed, and aniseed. Probably helps with decomp smells. Probably. The body would then be sewn back up and then they would actually coat it in wax before the body would be carried by the Skolatoi or other royal Scythians in a wagon on a final tour of the Scythian land and through all of the different tribes where his subjects, the king's subjects, would pay respect to him. Do we know what kind of wax? Not that I know of. Bees? <laughs> Nothing that I found was able to, like, detailed what sort of wax. So I don't have an answer to that. I also don't know, or at least I wasn't able to confirm if any of the bodies found through archaeological excavation, if they had actually been prepared this way. I wasn't able to confirm that. So the... I mean, it's been a long time. Yes. Well, I mean, you could do, like, I don't know. I think it's pretty obvious to tell if somebody's body has been cut open. And considering that a lot of the bodies that they have found are like super well preserved, the Scythians oh, were really, really the Scythians were really into tattooing, and you can actually look up some of the pictures of some of the tattoos because like the skin is so well preserved that you can see. I forget what the one lady's called, but there's a a woman's corpse that's you can still see these beautiful tattoos, like even by like modern standards, which is cool. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's not Lady Di, is it? Like Princess Diana. No, 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 no. It's, she's a remarkably well-preserved corpse, and I can't, re I can't remember all the details, but I just remember them being like, she's the diva corpse. Uh, uh, I'm not but sure. She's a very old, remarkably preserved lady that they believe was royalty, but I, I guess that wouldn't make her a Scythian king, so. Uh, well, Scythian kings were Never mind the anything only... I just said. Well, Scythian kings weren't the only people that got tattooed. It was common. A lot of them got tattooed, so including women. Like one of the most famous examples of a corpse with these tattoos is a female corpse. So it could oh. be the same. I'm not sure. If you type in Scythian, <laughs> if you type in Scythian body tattoo, I'm sure something will show up. Excellent. Well, now I have my homework. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that nothing scary shows up for that, I just realized. But best of luck to anybody that looks that up. I, yeah, you may or may not be looking at bodies. <laughs> well, that's what you're looking for. True. If if they are from 500 BCE, then they are most definitely corpses by now. I should certainly hope so. Unless it's just a picture of Charlize Theron from the old guard. Yeah, unless, except for that, who is, who is most purportedly immortal, but also fictional. <laughs> hey, man. Could be based on true events. We don't know. Just a lot of c conditions for the exception. Anyways. But anyway. <laughs> so you got the king. You got him. He's been cut open, cleaned out, filled with herbs and spices, set to 350 degrees, covered in wax. 
And he's touring around the Scythian land, essentially allowing his subjects to pay his, their last respects to him. The royal Scythians, which is like the noble, high-class Skolatoi, they are setting an example to all of the subjects. They are cutting their hair. They are cutting off a piece of their ears. They're scratching up their arms and faces. And they thrust an arrow through their right hand to pay their respects, to show their mourning. And the subjects who see this, they follow suit. They also scratch themselves up, cut off a piece of their right hairs, tear out their hair, cut their hair, etc. And because, again, this is a nomadic people, as they go from one area to the next through Scythian land, they gather different groups of people and slowly a, a funeral procession grows behind the wagon carrying the corpse of the king as they slowly make their way to the land of the Garoi or South Ukraine. Once they're there... That's a really great mental picture. It's kind of cool to think about, yeah. But we haven't even gotten to like, oh dude, you don't even know where this is going. You don't, you ain't got a clue. There's still more? You ain't got a clue, man. These are elaborate. So. Elaborate funerals. We got the king. He's in a wagon. He's been stuffed like a turkey, sewn up, coated in wax. Funeral procession. Everybody's crying and scratching themselves up. They're going to the land of the Garoy, and they finally arrive. So what do they do? They dig a square pit, and then they place a bed of rushes down. And upon the bed of rushes, they place their king. And they use more rushes and some spears to make a roof over the body. Once again, we are still talking about the account from Herodotus. Once the king is all nice and cozy on his eternal bed of rushes, the entourage of the king is strangled. One of his concubines, his cupbearer, his oh. cook, his groom, his principal servant, his courier, and all of his horses enter the grave with him though they are not placed on the bed of rushes with him. What are, are they just like put in graves next to him or are they just kind of piled on top? According to Herodotus, because the archaeological record says otherwise, they are placed kind of around, like you've got your square pit and then you've got the king in the middle and then there's space around him in that pit. Okay, so you've kind of got like a wreath of sacrifices around the king. I like that. A wreath of sacrifices. Human sacrifices. <laughs> what a lovely image. It's for your next holiday party. Yeah. <laughs> so, on top of these human sacrifices, uh, prize possessions dedicated by other people are also placed in the grave, as well as gold libation bowls and other valuable items. And once all of this is done... Everyone witnessing this burial joins in to help bury the king. And according to the way that, at least the way that my translation of Herodotus makes it sound, is that it's a, it's a party. We're going to bury your king. We want to try and make this like all of the, as much dirt as possible on top of this king. And it's a grand old fun time, according to my translation, or at least the way that it's worded. It, that's what it makes it sound like. And do you think it's over? Guess what? <laughs> It's not, because... <laughs> that's, that's on trend. One year later, everybody returns to the king's grave. They all go back to their nomadic lifestyle for a whole year, and then they go back to the land of the Garoy, and 50 men and 50 horses are strangled. If you think you know where this what? is going, I promise you, it's for not. The, for the mortuary... 
the cannibalism and whether or not it's mortuary cannibalism or if some shit goes down and there's some desperation. I'm going to guess it's mortuary cannibalism. (laughs) Well, I guess we've kind of already covered the cannibalism with the whole drinking the blood. It's not, I guess, is drinking blood cannibalism? I feel like that's a conversation for like 12 a.m. over drinks. (laughs) Is it the liquid diet version of cannibalism? (laughs) Maybe. I would say yes. Oh, man. So, or is it just bad vampirism? We've got 50 men <laughs> strangled. We've got 50 horses strangled. The organs and the guts of both the men and the horses are removed and replaced with chaff. Nothing so fancy as what the king gets before they are being sewn up once more. I find it interesting that Herodotus doesn't state whether or not they get waxed. He doesn't say, but I kind of wonder if maybe that's something he left out. But then again, I'm getting ahead of myself. Wagon wheels are then cut in half to form like a half moon. And two large spikes on either side are also cut. Upon which the horse, one horse, is impaled with its feet above the ground. And it is outfit with a bridle and bit. And then the man is impaled to make it look like he is mounted on top of the horse. And they do this 50 times in a circle around the burial mound, like some kind of fucking nightmare carousel. What the (laughs) And then everybody just rides away. Everybody just fucking rides away, man. I feel like funeral workers must be like, I'm sorry, the king has died? Clear my schedule for the next two years. (laughs) I have so much work to do. Get get the interns. Get the temps. We got shit to do. I hope you like cleaning out cadavers. Like, this is a lot of people. And, like, do they empty and fill the horses as well or just the men? No, they empty and fill the men and the horses. According to Herodotus. I have questions. <laughs> May I, I'm going to briefly cover the burial of commoners. It is similar, although with far less fanfare and human sacrifice. Similar to how a king is brought to all the lands of his people. If a common person dies, they are brought on a wagon to their close family and friends. And these friends welcome the corpse and serve a feast, offering a portion of their feast to the body. And after a burial, at this point, Herodotus kind of skips ahead of it. He goes from talking about commoners, and then he goes back to talking, I guess, about everybody. After a burial, regardless of whose it was, whether it was a commoner or a king, Scythians would, air quote, wash themselves by, as he describes it, setting up a teepee, filling it with hot rocks, and then throwing cannabis seeds on it. And that is how, according to him, the Scythian people washed themselves. <laughs> which sounds like in as some sort of a steam bath. And he also describes how yeah. women would grind up like water, cypress, cedar, and frankincense and like plaster themselves in it. And then the next day they would chip the, they would chip it all off and they would be sparkling clean. And I'm like, why didn't you just use the water? You've got water. I mean, this seems very much like a, like a combination of like a mud bath and also when you smoke meat. Yes. <laughs> But so, again, fragrant and sanitized. I'm calling bullshit on Herodotus here. But that is Burial of Scythian Kings, according to Herodotus. I open the floor for questions. I have a question. All right. 
what significance is there to the fact that they like to strangle people and horses? I really would like to know that. Like, why? Why is that with all their, you know, we're going to stick a sword in some blood. Why are they not using their swords? They're using, they're strangling. That's what I do would Do they not like have any know. swords left? Where did the swords go? Oh, man. <laughs> I guess we gotta make the melon blood and they've they've rusted due to the blood and wine dip. I don't know, man. I'm just like, how do you strangle a horse? Their necks are so big. Well, I can read from you Herodotus and how he strangles. I don't know if like Herodotus does not give a reason as to why they scramble or why they uh strangle. Um I will point out that they do cut the throat of the one in one hundred men. So they don't always strangle. Hmm. Uh, but but they just really, really like to. As it, short on swords. According to Herodotus. As According. it falls, he invokes the god to whom he is sacrificing, and then casting a noose around its neck, inserts a stick into the noose, which he proceeds to twist, thereby strangling the victim. At this point, again, Herodotus is referring to like a cow as a victim, which I guess, depending on your own beliefs, it might be. Yeah, I don't know. Is my short answer? Just fair. Remember. I mean, this is what twenty five hundred years ago now. Yeah. Also, I'm curious what the difference is between the archaeological record and the and the the histories record because you mentioned that there's there's clashes between those two sets of information. Well, Mariah, that's a perfect subway. Subway. Well, Mariah, that's a perfect segue. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> Subway? 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 We are not sponsored by Subway. We're not. Not spawn. But Subway, if you want to, you know. Subway, if you're feeling particularly death positive and curious about history, please hit us up. But anyway, that's a great segue, (laughs) Mariah, as um, there is a lot of archaeological evidence and... I think I mentioned this at the beginning of the episode, but there are multiple eras of the Scythian people. And as a result, there are much in the same way that you might dedicate certain types of cultures to arrowheads for ancient lithics, especially in uh, North America. There are a number of Kurgan and Scythian subcultures across time, but the ones that Herodotus would have been dealing with and that we've been talking about today is what we refer to as classical Scythians, who, according to Herodotus, despite detesting the Hellenes or the Greeks, adopted a lot of their practices and were obviously on very good terms with them because we do find like Greek art and items very heavily influenced by the Greeks in their burials. There is... Partial evidence to that uh, supports Herodotus's claim about the altars to Ares. There's evidence of Kurgan-like mounds with no burials, but with just objects. Notably, there's one at Kremenivka, which contained pieces of amphorae, a mirror, a bowl, and a belt buckle. But there's no sword on top of a pile of sticks, as Herodotus had stated, and that there's a couple that appears a couple times in the archaeological record. From what I was able that to there's find, no sword. there's no sword. Um, Maybe someone took the sword. I don't think this one had, like, this particular Kurgan had any signs of looting. 
there are definitely several Kurgans that like they were definitely looted either in antiquity or in modern day, but there's usually like it's usually pretty easy to tell if that happened. From what I was able to find though, there was definitely a degree of human sacrifice in many of the burials where there was most often more than one individual found in a single Kurgan with emphasis being primarily on one corpse. Like one corpse was a lot more outfitted than the rest. But none of none of these no Kurgans in existence that anyone has ever found have the same extent of fucking Herodotus's mere carousel of death. There are no burials that show that amount of like I feel like it would be very obvious if you were to come across that and you could point to that and say, Alright, well, maybe Herodotus actually did see this crazy thing, but there is currently no archaeological evidence to support that. Interesting. And they like this carousel of death was left outside and exposed, right? Yeah, out on the plains. It's scavengers might have picked up and taken a lot of the body parts, which I'm sh- I'm sure archaeologists have tried to account for. But you never know how far, you know, 2,500 year back vulture is going to go with, say, a spare right arm. <laughs> I, <laughs> my, my question now is, even though there's no archaeological record, surely from Herodotus's descriptions, someone out there has done a drawing or some some visual representation of this. Not that I'm encouraging people to go out and see it, but I myself am having a hard time visualizing this nightmare carousel. I don't know if I want to exactly, but I'm having a hard time trying to imagine exactly what it's going to look like. Do you know if there's any visual representations out there, Christia? Uh, Not that I have seen. Generally, if you type in Kurgan, you'll get some like sketches, you'll get archaeological cross-sections that show like a burial chamber and then essentially how it was constructed, but I haven't found anything. I haven't found anything that shows the nightmare carousel of death, as I am calling it. I haven't seen any sketches or, like, fan art of it. (laughs) Call out to you fan artists out there who may or may not be fans of horses as well. Welcome to you. But maybe not. Who knows? If you really want to practice men and horses, good opportunity. Um, (laughs) I need to find this (laughs) so I talked about Kermenevka and how it was just a Kurgan that didn't have any burials or anything in it but we also do have Kurgans that while they do not have nightmare carousels of death around them they do have the multiple bodies that or multiple sets of human remains that highly suggest that there was human sacrifice involved. The Saloka Kurgan is one of the more famous ones, as it not only confirms the what is traditionally referred to as the Land of the Garoy, it is located in modern southern-day Ukraine. There were originally, most likely, five sets of human remains, but as Janine kind of pointed out earlier, plundering is common, and common everywhere Um, but this one was or this one is thought to have been plundered in antiquity and so only four sets of human remains remain all of these burials had grave goods with them 
They were all rather elaborately dressed, but the way that Herodotus talks about it makes it seem like, oh, you're the concubine that's getting sacrificed, uh, get over here, and like thrown in, but it seems like everybody was like actually dressed quite nicely before they were put into the grave. So they were buried with weapons, and they are thought to be bodyguards to the one individual who was buried that has all of the hallmarks of a Scythian leader. Damn. This particular individual was buried with a golden neck ring, golden bracelets, a gold-sheathed dagger, as well as a scepter shaft in his right hand, as well as numerous gold platelets sewn onto the clothing, bronze and silver tableware, Greek dress drinking vessels, and so much more. And I feel like this um, example of the different types of grave goods actually shows kind of the variety that you can find in a Kurgan. There is no one common set of items that shows up in Kurgans. It's like kind of a little bit of everything gets thrown in. Another... Yeah, just what was important to that leader. Exactly. Although even that, we we can't really confirm that either, because according to Herodotus, it wasn't his belongings that were put in. It was dedications from mourners. So it might not even be his items that are in there with him. Although it kind of doesn't... Like, logically, I would assume that it belongs to him, but then Herodotus comes along with his weird accounts that may or may not be real, with his death carousels, and makes me doubt everything. (laughs) Chertomlik is another Kurgan. It had four sets of human remains in total. All were dressed in fine clothing with gold, and they all had, like, separate burial chambers. Some had, like, amphorae filled with wine, as well as the remains of... 11 horses not set with men or up on some creepy stake but they were there how many horses do they have to just sacrifice them all the time well i think like it's very similar to horses are valuable in the same way that wood would be valuable to someone who lives on the plains so i think it's just their way of showing you know this is a very important person, so we're going to put some of our, very, of our most important belongings, horses, wood, gold, etc., into this grave with them. So, and presumably, I mean, their whole way of life is reliant on horses, but I imagine that they would probably have, like, they'd probably have to be very good at, like, actively breeding them and, you know, making sure that they're... I'm sure that they would probably have, like, a certain number every year that they're like, oh yeah, we're gonna probably sacrifice this many every year. How many horses are in the budget for sacrifices? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Are they the sick horses? Are they the, the hero horses? We gotta retire these guys. <laughs> Thanks for all the hard work, horsey. Uh, time for uh, a noose, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> One last thing that I kind of just want to touch on. One thing that the archaeological record kind of disproves that Herodotus says is he says that they don't really work in silver, but they work a lot in gold. When, if you look at the archaeological record, they were really, really advanced metallurgists. You have beautiful electrum cups, you have uh, gold combs, you've got pieces of jewelry and silver and iron and... They were, A, very good merchants because they were nomadic, but they they made really good quality and really beautiful pieces of art. And they're actually quite unique looking. If you have a chance, I would definitely look up Kurgan burial goods just because 
Herodotus, I feel like, kind of shafted them pun not intended over the over the quality of their <laughs> of their uh wares and i think that in general herodotus saw them probably doing some level of human sacrifice or saw them doing something that he saw as barbaric and just kind of took what he saw and just ran with it so while i think that there is there well we've proven that there is some truth into what he says i also think that he is as biased as any other historian. Facts. Facts. Yeah. Yeah, definitely some uh, some embellishments uh, with the, the death carousel in particular. Yes. And the right arm bouquet throw. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel, honestly, like, I'm on the fence about that one. I feel like that's something that we could still, like, discover because that would definitely be a case of an animal taking that spare limb away, but the the other corpses, or like the rest of the corpse, would hypothetically be intact if it was buried. Well, with the with the whole thing with the right arms, as I imagine, it's like a battlefield. So while there would be a certain level of taphonomic process with animals and scavengers coming along, I think in general. A good portion of the corpses would stay where they are. Vultures don't take... Most scavengers don't, like, take scavenged food to their home or anything. They usually eat it where they find it, right? So... They do, yeah. It would still be there, and then there would just be evidence of, you know, bird beaks and things on their bones. But anyway, that is my take and my episode on Scythians and Kurgans. Not a lot of people, I think, know about these people. Not a lot of people know what a Kurgan is. I imagine if you're from somewhere like Russia or Ukraine or the Middle East, you might be a bit more familiar with them, but they're pretty cool. Or like Turkey. Yeah, I mean, we didn't know anything about them, and now we know lots, and it's very metal for the most part. Uh, Metal AF. Both. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It's got me thinking about, this is kind of my final thought about all this. Uh, it's got me thinking about how a lot of cultures that we now are so far removed from in our time, chronologically removed from, shall I say, the way that they would bury or dispose of our dead, their dead, is kind of all all we have to go by. That's the archaeological record for the most part is their bodies and what they decided to leave with their dead. Um, and I think that's really interesting that the connection that we have to those people that we could never ever meet alive, all that we have to connect us to them is discovering their dead, whether or not there's some moral uh, qualms about disturbing the dead. It's interesting, nonetheless. I think my favorite thing and what got me really interested in archaeology and all of that is I've never super been interested in osteology or bones. Like I'm interested in the information that can be gleaned from it, but I'm not the one who wants to be rooting around in some 2,000-year-old corpse's stomach looking to see if they actually have any aniseed that was in there but i am i think what really really interests me is definitely grave goods i have a very big thing for cultures i've realized and i think i'm actually just realizing right now 
the one thing that I'm most interested in, though it draws me to ancient cultures that I have an interest in, some more ancient than others, but Vikings, Egyptian, Greeks, Romans, Scythians, is that they all have strong archaeological records and they all have stuff, things in their graves with them. And I think that's so interesting and so important to highlight that these people, they wanted to these items, or at the very least, somebody else thought, this person is dead and I want them to take this gold ring to the afterlife with them. And I don't know, I just think that there's something so poetic and interesting about that. Yeah, and it definitely, I think, kind of throws into sharp relief the contrast between how the dead was taken care of historically, and I mean historically up until pretty recently, within the last century or two, versus how, at least in Western countries, we manage our dead now. What will the archaeological record look like of our graveyards and our cemeteries now in the future, right? Embalmed bodies have to go into vaults because embalming fluids are extremely caustic. Will these just be caskets of bone and embalming soup? Or <laughs> what? We're so death avoidant these days where we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to keep records of it. Mourning practices tend to be kind of a one and done and then very private. So it's interesting to see whether there will be more or less that future generations can derive from the care we take with our dead now, right? Because we don't really do grave goods. We just have landfills buried underground. That's a really interesting thought. I feel like we could cover that in an entire episode unto yeah. itself is what are we leaving for the future? Yeah, I definitely have a lot to add to that, especially just because in my schooling to become an archaeologist, that was something that we were we were regularly posed that question and as far especially like as far as garbage and things i definitely yeah i definitely have a lot to say on that archaeology is essentially just garbage so i don't mean that as an insult to archaeology <laughs> i mean that we are literally just looking at the garbage of previous generations literal so here's maybe a preview for the future you can't leave bodies in space because the un considers it litter so, not that we would morally consider bodies, particularly bodies that have been very carefully preserved as litter or trash or refuse of any kind, but I think there's something in there in terms of the the left behind mm -hmm. things of a culture. And one day we'll cover, I don't know, Western burial and cremation and uh, what happens to our dead currently. Mm -hmm. So... And that's how, at least according to Herodotus and according to the archaeological record, the Scythians managed their dead and built Kurgans. Remember, death is omnipresent, but that's what makes us mortal. Until next time. Mortals Podcast is created, hosted, and edited by three morbidly curious individuals, Christia, Mariah, and Janine. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast Mortals, on Tumblr at Mortals Podcast, and on Instagram at Mortals underscore podcast. Our music is A Mermaid's Eulogy by Etienne Roussel. Thanks for listening, mortals. Take care of yourselves out there. <laughs>